And now, coming to you live from... I don't know where. Where are we coming live from, Gary? <laughs> I think you're still in Perth, which is near the near the detritus... Um... Uh, the decorative field for the for the missing Malaysian airplane. It's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the Coot Street Podcast! And here we are. I am freshly back from Orlando, Florida, where I attended the International Concert of the... Com- the International Concert for the Fantastic and the Arts? Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> I don't, no, 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 no. I mean, that sounds like a week a weekend of the rock bottom, bottom remainders, remainders. And I'm not sure that I really am ready for that. Well, I uh, there there were there were people there with musical talent. Uh, How much uke does a good man need? Uh, that's true. <laughs> our, well, our, my my our, our, my fellow reviewer and our fellow with Locusite Russell Letson plays a mean uh, 1930s Parisian jazz guitar. Okay, and, and and we we have you know our dear friend of this podcast uh, Amelia Beamer, who's musically inclined, tinkering uh-huh. away on a, on a theme for us. Uh, which yes, at some point we, we will bring to fruition because she's being wonderful about it. Um, but so, so tell me, you, you you went off into the wilds of Florida in search of alligators and science fiction, and you came back with a podcast. How was the weekend? The weekend was wonderful. It was the the weather was delightful. It was one of the conferences where everybody seems to be getting along fine. There was there were a couple of Awkward moments that had nothing to do with our conference, such as that we overlapped for about a day and a half with a John Deere tractor conference. Uh, those with, guys uh, keep showing up. They were at the Denver WorldCon. Well, absolutely. We, we ended up, uh, thanks thanks to our friend Ellen Clages, somebody uh, who, who basically snookered them out of giving us a John Deere hat, which we then gave away for the winner of a flash fiction contest. And also, I think possibly related to the John Deere people, was the fact that at this conference, which everybody should come to at some point, there's a wonderful bar area out around the pool, and they had signed, they they had hired country and western singers to come in, and um, and sing for hours every afternoon for at least two of the afternoons. So we had to abandon that and go inside and and but you go inside and you play pool and things. So it, it was generally wonderful. What I like about ICFA, ah. Uh, and there are a few other conventions like this, although world fantasy can be like this and ReaderCon can be like it, is that it's a small, eclectic mix of people so that everyone is kind of thrown together in the bar area. And you and I have talked before about how important a bar area is for any convention. Well, at least to us. Well, at least to us, but not just because of the drinks, because a, a, a number of distinguished writers who are there are not even drinking alcohol anymore. And and that that became a trend. People were ordering what? cranberry. Well, I mean, there the, are friends of ours who who no longer uh, drink alcohol. Joe Haldeman no, no, drinks very little. Peter Straub drinks none. So the the trendy drink became not not your sea breezes, but cranberry juice and um, club soda. So people were all over that. But the point is, so they know they can't a, come to World Fantasy anymore. Oh, I we are going to such start such a trend of of non-alcoholic drinks with World Fantasy. I think it's a new trend. I think we can actually make a meme out of it. Mocktails in um, Washington. Hmm. We don't call them mocktails. We call them no. That's like because you're, you're trying to be manly about it, but they're mocktails. I no, they're not. They're they're, they're not fake. They're not Shirley Temples. They're things like Japanese drinking vinegars, which are absolutely rather delightful. 
They are vinegar flavored um, drinks. Hey, look, things. I, I, we are going off on the wrong tangent. Head back towards the, the center of the conversation. Okay, okay, okay. This strange back aberration, with, which hopefully will go away, will. We can touch on that. I like the, okay, but the point is, I like conventions in which people don't go off into their corners, but are thrown together in interesting combinations of ways. And the one podcast uh, I did manage to record there was an example of that because um, Steve Erickson and Ian McDonald and I had been on the opening panel, and with Steve writing a long series, a very impressive uh, series of three million words of fantasy novelism, and, uh, and Ian writing now his young adult series, I you know, in, in many conventions, they would not have talked at all. The, yeah. They were learning about each other. And so you, you get a convention in which a horror writer and a hard science fiction writer and a poet and an epic fantasy writer um, and uh, all end up having the same conversation. That, to me, is a more interesting conversation than, the, than what frequently happens at world cons when all these groups go off into their various subgroups because the convention itself is so overwhelming that you, 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 you can't get a word in edgewise. So, uh, so I like these eclectic conventions where you find unexpected uh, relationships between yeah. writers and artists and academics. That sounds the, like a reasonable I, thing. I mean, it sounds like a great convention and a great... and, and It, it really is. I wish you could make it. Well, so do I, though I probably never, ever will, barring a miracle. Um, and similarly, uh, I mean, ReaderCon, I think, is the other major convention like that in mm. the sphere of events that we tend to attend. Yeah, I mean, ReaderCon, uh, one, one, my, my, uh, one of the ways I measure ReaderCon is that... Um, it's the only convention that comfortably seems to include, let's say, John Crowley and Alan Steele. Yes. Uh, who have very little in common, except that um, they, they like this convention. Obviously, they live somewhere in the, in, in the northeast of the United States. But, um, but it, it, it's an unexpected convention. And I've decided what I like are unexpected conventions where you're having conversations that you have not had each convention for the last 12 or 13 years. That's true. This actually segues, oh yeah. No, uh, uh, if, if, if you want to segue away from this because no, of, no, no, the, no, no, keep keep going for another minute. We get can, and then we'll segue. We'll do do some segging. Okay, there's some segue. There's a segue do here, uh, but you were going to make a point. Well, no, really, actually, that was my my point became my segue because that's the way that I think, ah. and that was since we're talking about conventions, uh, obviously the next convention that we're going to attend together will be Luncon three, once I actually mm. buy my plane fares for me and Sophie. And I confess I'm a little bit trepidatious about the event, Gary, because unlike your ICFA ReaderCon model and mm -hmm. unlike to a lesser extent the World Fantasy model, it's a big sprawling event. This is going to be an incredibly sprawling uh, WorldCon, I think, yes, and possibly is. potentially the biggest one in 20 years. And if that proves to be the case, it will be difficult to navigate socially i think to find people do things and all that and there'll be a lot of the events spent running around so that's going to be a little bit of a challenge i think to to, to get the kind of convention that any particular person wants out of it this is the point i was making about sub conventions i think one of the things that happens when a convention is overwhelming in size and of the conventions i could i go to only world cons are overwhelming in size because i cannot imagine uh, Comic-Con in San Diego, although I will be at Chicago's C2E2. I, I put a plug for this thing we're doing. I'm doing, I'm, I'm chairing a panel and whenever, whenever this is, I should know this, May, maybe, April, 
uh, panel with John Scalzi and um, Daryl Gregory and M.E. Taylor uh, that uh, publishers are putting together. But giant conventions like that, my point is, almost compel you to shrink into your own groups. Um, yes, they do. And, 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 and so you do have nice conversations. You meet lots of nice people that you want to see. But the, you know, then you and I have been to a, at least a couple of world cons together, and we tend to see each other, and we tend to see the same group of friends. Uh, and I'm sure that the uh, magical fairy dust people who go to these things are off talking to other magical fairy dust people. And the real what are, what are magical fairy dust people? There are there there are magical fairy dust people all over world cons. I have no idea what you mean. Um, maybe I'm referring, maybe I'm thinking mostly of the one in California, but nevertheless, all I'm trying to do is illustrate the fact that there are many, many sub communities within a world con. That's true, and, and you know the size, the overwhelming, intimidating size of it, causes us to retreat into our own interest groups, and that yeah, I guess is fun. It's enjoyable. It's meeting old friends, but it doesn't generate the kind of cross pollination, the kind of interesting ideas that you get. When you talk to somebody from, let's say, the magical fairy dust people. Okay, I can. I, I, I take your point. I'm not going to press you on magical fairy dust people because I think you're being probably okay. mean to somebody. But I shall just set that aside. Okay, let's just talk about military science fiction people. There are military. Oh, science no, fiction let's people. not. Okay. <laughs> let us just allow that we're going to go to world 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 con. I'll be there. You'll be there. Sophie will be there. Some of my Australian friends are coming over. Uh, I think Tansy Rayner Roberts will be there. I know Elisa Krasnerstein and Mackenzie Krasnerstein uh, oh, Obridge will be there. Um, and I think a few others. I don't think Sean Williams and Garth Nix are coming this time. But there will be others, and mu and much fun will be had. But this is now, exactly my point. When I go to a Worldcon now, uh, obviously I'm going to want to see you. We get to see each other once a year. Elisa, yep. I've met exactly once. Tansy. So I'm going to want to see the people that I know, uh, yes. which is great. It's wonderful. It's a, yeah. it's, it's a good thing that happens. Look, and if to we're going to talk see... about our intended social itinerary, yes, there's a whole bunch of people. There are people I meant to see when I was in uh, London uh, for the Brighton Worldcon that we didn't mm. see. I very, very much want to spend time with Jonathan McElmont and Paul Kincaid. Mm. I want to spend some more time with John and Judith Clute, uh, all sorts of people, um, Farah Mendelssohn and Cheryl Morgan and whoever else. So all kinds of good people. Absolutely. Half a segue. Since we're talking about Worldcon having got there via conventions, let us point out, first of all, that it is our intention, Gary, and let, let's nail our colors to the mast here, to do Cood Street Live when we're there. That is, uh, bar, barring the permission and tolerance of the organizers of the, of the convention who's, who, who are aware of this and who I believe have suggested that we will try to do that. I mean, hopefully not at 9 o'clock on a Friday morning or something. No. Um... And we will be doing it, presumably with guests. A cast of several. A cast of several. That's, and, and that, our dear listeners, is the extent of our planning so far. <laughs> but I am Something determined there will, will be more, Gary. I emailed you. but Okay, you, okay. We, I know. We have plans to make. We have things to do. <laughs> there will, there, it will be an extravaganza, a Code Street extravaganza. There will be people and talking and maybe novelty gifts. Maybe novelty gifts, maybe... 
fake gunfire in the background, maybe the sound of rockets screaming overhead. A live performance. I don't know. But anyway, by now I would have turned this episode of the podcast off. So let me segue to the remainder of my point, and that is that at least as we talk on this day, the 29th of March for you and the 30th of March for me, Hugo nominations remain open. That's correct. And they remain open for well for about another 48 hours, I guess, roughly. And have you uh, submitted your Hugo ballot, Gary? I submitted my Hugo ballot quite a while ago, but now I'm seeing other people suggesting things. And I, I, this is something else people may not realize. If you submitted your Hugo ballot, you can go in and modify it. You can. At any point. You know. And I mean, if you decide... For example, that you want to nominate, which I think would be a great idea. I think the Cood Street podcast should be nominated for best novel. <laughs> what? Because it's ridiculous. Because it's ridiculous and 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 and, and uh, too long. <laughs> we have many things in common with novels. Be- Not best, the least of best dramatic form. long form. <laughs> exactly. No. Anyway, no. We, Our I friend Elisa nominated Sharknado. She tweeted today that she nominated well, Sharknado for best long form. Well, that's because Elisa so- is awesome in her own way. Uh, I will say there, there's actually a little thing about this because I'm going to circle around the Hugo Ballad a bit for a minute. I want to nail my colors to the mast on this. I'm, I'm not interested in campaigning for uh, awards, and I don't really believe I or you ever have. But should we ever be fortunate enough to win a Hugo Award for the best fan cast, I would be delighted to tell the world, Gary, I am not in the least bit embarrassed or ashamed of the fact that this is a quote-unquote fan activity. Yes, absolutely. And I know some people out there in the world have felt that uh, people who work in the science fiction fantasy field on a professional level as well sometimes feel, I don't know, that people who are professional don't take the, take these awards seriously uh, and you'd suddenly become you know sort of mysteriously Hugo award winner and never mention why well I got to tell you I would be I mean, I'd be gobsmacked and surprised but um, I would be proud as hell and I think anybody else would be too should, should be too I don't think uh, I, I don't really think I know anybody who's cynical about uh, the Hugo award or the world fantasy award or the nebula award uh, because Whatever you believe about the um, demographics or politics or sociobiology behind it, uh, it means some significant people, some significant contingent of your peers likes what you do. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think that's always important. And um, the fan cast, being identified as a fan, one of the things that's only happened to me in the, re- in the last 10 years probably are doing things that people would think of as fan activities, doing panels at world cons i've done yeah. occasionally off and on but up until then if i were if i had identified myself as a fan at all it would have been as a very bad fan because i didn't do enough <laughs> fan, fan things bad fan but really yeah i remember if, if i so um so i take pride in the the one uh, award i have i take a perverse pride in the fact that it says non-professional on the base of the award which is just that's almost like saying <laughs> you did this because you're a fan. You did this out of love for what you're doing because you did this because you're not getting paid. Yeah. You did this because you've completely been suckered by this industry that will make you do things without getting paid very much for them. Um, but I'm inordinately proud of that award. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and a non-professional award seems to me is very much like a fan award. 
Um, yes and no. I mean, it's slightly different at times. But, well, it's but, slightly but, cer- but certainly, I'd say that you know, f- from my own perspective, I mean, and there are a bunch of fan awards. Uh, there are several fan categories. I think we'd be better yeah. to say, you know, uh, fanzine, fan cast, fan artists, and they're all fine. I mean, I know there's a lot of uh, discussion about whether uh, professional writers should be eligible for fa- for fan writers. Mm-hmm. And without going into it overly, I think as long as they are upfront and proud of it, then I think it's a good thing. I will well, I mean, say, the, yeah, sorry. Yeah, the issue you're talking about was Frederick Pohl a few years ago. He's one of them, uh, yeah. And John Scalzi. And he's, yeah. Scalzi is another one. And uh, the fact is that if you grow up and have a successful career, does that mean you're no longer a fan? It seems to me that's that's the way you identify yourself in that specific activity. Yeah. I mean, I, I, this begins to segue into, again, and I don't want to segue too far from the Hugo ballot for a minute, but uh, it segues across to a, a discussion that was had about uh, professionals reaching into fan spaces. And I wouldn't want to invalidate any of the opinions that have been put out there, but it's it, it's a distinction that I'm not entirely comfortable with because I'm not sure how valid it is, you know. And it, it's mm-hmm. a distinction that's become more controversial, I think, because the modern era of social media allows people to reach into one another's worlds without knowing it, you know. So that you have these things where if I tweet about something and I tweet it as, you know, I don't know, let's say... Um, at Michael Swanwick wrote a great story, and here it is. Well, because I've put at Michael Swanwick in my tweet, in my tweet, it it goes, shows up in Michael's Twitter feed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a fair chance that I'm ta- trying to talk to him. I think people forget that. Probably true. So, um, I want to talk. Of, uh, since I hadn't meant to do this, but a couple of details about my ballot and your ballot, Gary. All right, because if I need to change my ballot, I will. People, can... um, I'm not going to talk about too much to, about the top of the ballot, really. Uh-huh. I, I mean, okay, just very quickly, your favorite nominee. Let, let's do one in each of the main categories here. Okay, you're going to put up first one or two. In fact, your top two. Top two nominees for best novel, Gary. Now, mine aren't science fiction novels, which really hammers a prejudice of mine. I'm, I'm not happy about this. I've got uh-huh. two fantasy novels and three science fiction novels on my ballot. And my top two books of last year were probably River of Stars by Guy Gavriel Kay and The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. Um, I'm sure I had them on my list, but you, you, you actually have your nominees list in front of you, don't you? You've been looking at this. Do you, would it be too embarrassing for me to admit that I'm not sure? It's been months. That's okay. Well, I only did mine this week. That's why. I would have remembered oh, okay. anyway. <laughs> I don't even know where I find my ballot. I guess I can find it by going back yeah. to the World website. Uh, well, the, both of those were on my list. I mean, yeah. certainly both of those got nominated by me. Where they got nominated on my uh, ballot, I'm not exactly sure. Yeah. Um, and I think probably my top two novellas were... Caitlin Kiernan's Black Helicopters and Yoon Harley's Isil's Lexicon. Well, here's a problem. I, I think I may have put down Black Helicopters. I may not have thought of it. I may not have finished my nominees. But the problem of nominating something which is seen by so few readers, do you think something like the Caitlin Kiernan thing, which I think 200 people will have seen because it was only included in the limited edition of her, of her collection, um, does something like that going to have a chance? Yeah, I think it does have a chance because the number of nomin of nominators per category in the no- when nominating is fairly small. If if of the cool. three four hundred people who read this, forty or fifty nominate, that would get it onto the ballot. Then you could see about it about getting into the Hugo packet, 
and then people could actually make a judgment on it. Reasonable. That's the way the world moves. So, you know, there's that. And there are other fine works. Shall I keep going down mine and then we'll come back to yours because you're trying to find yours? I I went around a little bit on on my novelette category. I know there are people out there who don't like the novelette category, but Uh that's how that It's an odd category. Why is it an odd category? It's just a category. It's an odd category because if you move outside of the magazine genre publishing field, um, it almost doesn't exist as a category as as, as a length of fiction. There are novellas, there are novels, and there are long short stories. Novelette, it seems to me, is something that some magazine editor designed in 1943 to make a sh- long, sh- longish short story look like something more. I don't really know the origins of the uh, of novelette, and I'm not sure that I really want to launch off on an investigation. But uh, I'm perfectly content to roll with it. You know, it's just like okay, okay fine. Good. You know, you want novelette? It's fine. Why not? Um, and for me, probably, I mean, K.J. Parker had a really good one called The Sun and I out through Subterranean. And um, I really, really liked um, Ted Chang's The Truth of Fact, The, the Truth of Feeling. I, that, I, I liked that quite a bit, too. Um, and our best short story was interesting. There's a lot of good short stories last year, I thought. Lots. I think Jeff Ryman's Rosary and Golden Star from FNSF mm-hmm. was a huge highlight. Uh, as was... Um, the Promise of Space by Jim Kelly from Clark's World. I like those a lot. I have no nominations for best related work, Gary. There you go. Uh-huh. So unless you're going to feed me some quietly by email later in the day, I'm not going to nominate any. Well, I'm trying to remember what I may have nominated. I may have nominated uh, Stefan Ekman's Study of Maps in Fantasy, which was very okay. well done. It was yep. his doctoral dissertation. It was published by Wesleyan. And uh, like I say, if I could figure out how to get back into my ballot, I would. All you have to do is find the link to, to uh, search for your oh, Hugo nomination deadline uh, email. It has a link to the ballot. It has your membership number and your PIN. But I okay. have, I, I, I found, okay, I found, I found my membership number and my PIN. <laughs> oh, can I just apologize, everybody, for the professionalism of this Excuse thing? Me, folks, we, while, we obviously while, didn't while plan this. paper here. Okay. Some of us. I will have you know, some of us dinosaurs still use paper and pencil to do things. He has a legal pad and a pen, everybody. It's kind of funny. Because um, I can see see Gary on, on FaceTime while I'm talking to you. Okay, very quickly, I nominated some stuff for Best Graphic Story, though I have to go back and look at it again. Okay, no, do that because I don't think I nominated anything. Well, I nominated two of Brian Vaughan's pieces, uh, The Private Eye and Saga, both of which I like a great deal. But I should probably add Hawkeye and Daredevil. I don't normally read DC Comics. In fact, I don't normally read comics much at all, but I've been reading them on the iPad, thanks to uh-huh. James Bradley of this parish, who yes. um, let me use his Comicsology account to read like 40 Daredevil comics in the past two weeks, and about 15 Hawkeye comics, and they're really quite good. So I'll nominate those. And, and I may, maybe even the new Sandman is actually good, but there's only one issue of that out. I never bother much with the, the drama Hugos. I don't have any particularly negative thing. I just don't especially focus mm. i mean i'll probably vote for gravity or nominate gravity because i think it's really good and europa report and other than um, that i don't know not sharknado oh i'm so heartbroken i don't um, want to just gang up and duplicate uh, uh, lisa Science ballot gary that's not fair no i don't want to do that either it's uh, absolutely true. we will pass over best editor short form well i know who i nominated in that category 
And then for a lot, but for long form, I'm actually going to go through this because there's some people I nominated, and I would commend them to the readership if they hear this in time. First of all, someone who should have won an enormous award by now already, William K. Schaefer of Subterranean. Yes. Uh, and then a batch of British editors who I think have really never been adequately recognized in in the Hugo Awards. So I'd say Malcolm Edwards, Guest of Honor of the Convention. It would be a very worthy nominee. Yes. Gillian Redfern, who's one of the head editors at uh, Golans. Simon Spanton, who's also one of the t- top editors at Golans. And Tim Holman. All would be very, very, very worthy Hugo nominees for Best Editor. Long form. There's a whole passel of semi-prosian people, but honestly, I suspect and I would support Interzone winning, given that sort of Locus isn't eligible anymore. No. I'm going to go straight now to fan writer. I, I skip over things we can. Fan writer is something. I now, tell me what you what you do there. I don't not, well, not know. What do you mean? What you do there? You you follow well, I mean, I, you follow stuff and then you nominate them. That's how that works. I, it's simple. Gary. I know some people. You know, but you know I, some I, people, I do you? People I follow. The problem is there are lots of fan writers I never heard of, and the few that I have. So okay, my nominees are Jonathan McElmont for his reviews uh-huh. commentary through Ruthless Culture and all that kind of thing. I think he's a really, really interesting, smart critic. And whilst I don't always agree with him, that's never really the point of it. The point is that I can understand why he has the views he has, and he's articulate and, and smart about that. Uh, I also was going to nominate Cameron Hurley, who's been writing for Locus and Aroundabout and is a really interesting uh-huh. uh, writer. Abigail Nussbaum, who's one of the better, newer reviewers of the past chunk of time and is now, uh, I think, reviews editor for Stranger Horizons and has been for a while. And Neil Alexander, all on my best fan writer ballot. And I'm just. I found my ballot. I'm really good man. Proud of good man. We'll come back to yours in a second, Ben. Yeah, all right. Well, actually, okay. What we'll do is we'll stop there. I'm, I'm going to keep. I've got no fan artist nominee, so I've only got the Campbell Award, which I'll come back because it's not a Hugo. So let's go back to the top of the ballot very quickly, Gary. Your best novel top two. Uh, I did have River of Stars, and I had The Adjacent. Well done. I, I, actually, the, actually, The Adjacent begs a question because the, I mean, the Adjacent obviously is a 2013 novel out in the UK, so it's eligible mm-hmm. this year. But what of uh, Mike Harrison's novel *Empty Space*? I think it may be eligible. I thought that was a 2012 book. Not in the U.S. Oh, well, this is one of the reasons we need to remind our listeners that you can go in and change your ballot because I might very well do that. We should have done this earlier because, he says, we could have played Mm. one of the great games in modern internet Cood Street stuff. We could play Ask Cheryl. Ah, that would be a good idea. Because Cheryl would know. Mm. But we can't play Ask Cheryl because this will come out too late. Uh, If I find out, we'll post it somewhere. But I think Empty Space may be eligible. Okay, best novella. I had Black Helicopters, and I had one by Yoon Ha Lee called Ishul's Lexicon. Those are the two I had. Copycat, you oh. already read. Um, I should All also... Right. We, did, we did not collude on this, people. I should also actually well, no, add... I mean, there's one other okay, very the fine third, novella, third which... List, third, third I had in this list, which is interesting, is Wakala Springs. Me too. Oh. Ha-ha. I had Spin uh-huh. by uh-huh. Nina Allen. What about you? Hmm? Spin by Nina Allen. That was on my list. What about you? Uh, it's not on my list. You idiot, it should be on your list. Um, what else did you have? What was your other one since that's the rest of the ballot? 
Uh, those are the three I had. I don't have oh, five. And I had Six Guns Snow White by Catherine Valenti from Subterranean, which is great. Okay. Okay. Best novelette, even though you don't know what it's for. I did have The Truth of Fact, The Truth of Feeling. And I had Zero for Conduct by Greg Egan. It's on my ballot as well. Great story from and Greg. And Pat Cavigan's The Christmas Show. Oh, that was, yeah, that was also terrific. Gee, she's written some awesome short stories lately. She's Pat really, Cavigan I, is really, really on a roll. I cannot wait for her Neptune novel. It's going to be awesome. Hmm. Except it won't be awesome because awesome is ridiculous. Why do we keep saying that? You're going to sit there and go, oh, for the whole book? That'd be really tiring. Okay. What about the best short story? I had Rosen, Ro, Rosary and Golden Star again. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of these, I don't remember because I must have read some of these just before I put the ballot in. I have uh, a Robert Reed story called Mystic Falls. Great story. And and Jeffrey Ford's The Fairy Enterprise. Another great story. Um, okay. Now, your best related work. I'm interested in your best related work, Gary. I have, uh, I'm not going to type away because people think I'm copying your balance. Okay. Well, I, partly, okay. This is one of the things where, where you self-disclosure. Now, are you, let people nominate themselves. Now, this is not quite nominating myself, themselves, but the best related work is always a thin category um, that breaks into two. It breaks into sort of gift books, goofy books, fun books. And, and sort of serious sort of scholarly reference books. Um, the Stefan Ekman book I mentioned is called Here Be Dragons, and it's it's a book about fantasy maps. It's, it's a good book. Another one is a collection that I have an essay in called Parabolas of Science Fiction, edited by Brian Atterbury and Veronica Hollinger. And the third one, which I think has really got some very interesting ideas in it, and I believe it was a 2013 book, was Jeff Vandermeer's Wonder Book. It was a tw- yeah, actually yes I should I should add that to my ballot Gary because I did see it and I was very impressed. It's a very it's a gorgeous book for one thing, but it has solid material in it, and it's not simply a writing handbook. No, uh, although it is that it has interesting little handwritten notes in it by people like John Crowley. Um, Vandermeer really has so. become a disturbingly interesting person. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, I shall definitely be looking to add that. Did, did you have anything for best graphic story, Gary? I have nothing. I had nothing in the graphic story category. I had nothing yet in the dramatic presentation category. But I suppose I'll put down Gravity, and I may put down Sharknado. <laughs> what, what does long form mean? I, 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 movie. I just, it means movie. Because well, here's the thing: if you put down Gravity, Sandra Bullock or Alfonso Cuarón, they're not going to show up. You put that in shark oh, needles, let's not have that conversation. Yes, yes, we know. But see, okay. let, let, let's be honest, though, about... Actually, you would love it if Sandra Bullock showed up, but complete aside to that, there is the question of whether gravity is science fiction at all that we talked about earlier. Anyway, moving ahead. Short okay. form, you got anything? Dramatic uh, presentation, short dramatic form? presentation, short form, no. Some episode of Doctor Who, right? Um, no, actually, I might put down one of the episodes of Helix, which is a new sci-fi series in the United States. From 2013? Yeah. Um, oh, you're right. It may not have started in 2013. Never mind. I, I guess I could down, actually, now that I think about it, I could probably put down something from Person of Interest, which I think is great, but... Uh. There's some things from Person of Interest. There's a show which is ending this year in the States called uh, Warehouse 13. Oh, yeah. Which has had mentioned individual, it. very strong episodes. Okay. Let's skip but, editor short form, because that's neither here nor there. Well... Uh, I certainly nominated you in that category, along with other people who shall remain nameless. Hi, Ellen. Um, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Best editor long form, I've not filled that part out yet. Gee, I thought I'd done that. Well, fix that. I will. Who did you have for there? I, well, as I told you, Bill Schaefer from Subterranean, who I think is very, very deserving, and somehow manages to get overlooked 
because I think he's from a independent press. I think it's not that. I think it's people perceive him as a publisher rather than an editor. Yes, they don't realize that he edits as well, and that he edits exactly. Subterranean magazine, and actually is eligible for best editor short form as well. And we should right. recognize it because uh, Subterranean magazine is going to come to its conclusion with a, I think, a triple issue or something, uh, and then that will be that. So you get we're going to miss that when it's gone. Uh, I edited. I the rest of mine were Brits. I really feel the ballot should. Well, I want my ballot at least to, to tend towards the you know Brits for Luncon. So I had Malcolm Edwards. I had Julian Redfern, mm-hmm. I had Simon Spanton, and I had Tim Holman, who are a rain, you know, some of the very, very, very talented uh, mm-hmm. book editors. And actually, now that I think about it, if I could get an extra spot in, I'd add in Jonathan Oliver from Solaris, who's my editor. Ah. I also nominated, I'd, uh, amongst my nominees, I nominated Adam Trudowski for Best Professional mm-hmm. Artist, because who is a, the, a guy who did the Infinity book covers. Who I think is terrific. Ah, okay. And I guess actually Jim Burns would be very worthy as well this year with all his interzone covers and everything. Uh, again, this is a, this is a field I don't keep up with, so I'll follow your lead on it. I had nothing put down for artists. Do you have anything the same for semi pro? Hmm. Anything for semi pro? Semi pro. I'm. I'm. Okay. This is where I. I confess. I know that Locus is not eligible for that. I'm not sure what is anymore. It's a very confusing category to me. Yes. I mean, it basically says. Four or, mis- four or more issues or the equivalent in other media and at least one of which appeared in 2013, which does not qualify as a fan cast and which in 2013 has met at least one of the following criteria. I think I should put down the name of a racehorse because I have no idea what, what that means. Yeah, that's so quite, is the- yeah. Actually, interesting, if you read that, I hadn't read that. Uh, I just kind of put stuff in, and I figured they'd work it out at their end. But let, let us consider. Okay, you paid its, its contributors, and was it was generally available only for paid purchase. If that's an and instead of an or, right? Well, oh. then none of my nominees are eligible. <laughs> but one of them, Interzone is eligible, right? And I think Interzone would be a terrific winner. Uh, Interzone would be fine. Um. Subterranean is on my ballot. But I don't know if it would be eligible because whilst it pays its pays its contributors and pays them very well, it's available for free. That's a problem. Strange Horizons pays its contributors, but and is edited by a cast of thousands. But I don't think it's available for paid purchase at all. Um, and it's one of the following criteria. Okay. Same for Light Speed and Beneath Cecil Skies, which are my nominees for, for Best Semi-Prosine this year. I don't know. I don't. Uh, it's a category which uh, – the reason I don't have anything, I gave up on it because um, it's, it's defined as a non-professional periodical, but one which paid its contributors. And there's some rule somewhere, the rule that excluded Locus from this, is not here in this definition, uh, other than saying that Locus is professional rather than non-professional. Hey, Gary? There's no definition of what professional and non-professional is. This is what they have administrators for. You but, know? But, the, but, but, but we're supposed to nominate things. Nominate what you want and then let them sort it. Uh, you know, it's like that thing you know, sort of from, from your bad old westerns where you, know, you shoot the bad guys and let, uh, let shoot everybody and let God sort them out. Well, nominate everybody and let the administrators sort it out. Of course, then they'll come back and they'll talk to you about you know the will of the electorate and not wanting to you know define you know challenge what nominators actually intended. When half the time, what nominators intended was we don't know what the category meant. But 
Right. I'm skipping Fanzine because I have no nominees. I'm skipping oh, Fancast because of, well, frankly, conflict of interest. Yeah, we can't talk about that. Not really. Uh-huh. But we'd be on Fan writer, I had put down Abigail in this bomb. Good uh-huh. man. A sound, solid choice. I don't have a fan artist nominee at the moment. So let us go to the Campbell Award, old son. Do you have any Campbell Award nominees, Gary? Uh, Sophia Samatar. Sophia is on my list. I do not have anybody else on my list. So shame, Australia, that. shame. You're, you're a bad oh. Okay, these are my nominees for the Campbell Award. Okay. And I've given a lot of thought, and some of these people have not had a lot of work out. But then that's consistent with what the Campbell Award is for. Yes. Okay, starting, starting up with Benjamin Sridenqua. I don't know how you pronounce her name. S-R-I-D-U-A-N-G-K-E-W. Right? Now, Benjamin is... Um, I forget where she's from, actually. I should oh. know. Malaysia somewhere, I think. And she's had a bunch of really terrific stories out, both online and through some of Jonathan Oliver's anthologies. And I've had a, great, I've had a fantastic story, actually, in uh, End of the Road. Really? And also and which has a story reprinted in my Best of the Year 8, which is coming out next year. Coming out shortly, I mean. Mm. Um, and I really like her stuff. She's great. Uh, I had Sophia. Uh, I had mm. Helen Marshall, who I think may be in her last year of eligibility. Great short oh. story writer. Okay. Yes. I've... And, I'm cu- and I'm not influenced at all by the fact that she was great fun in the bar in Brighton as well. Not at all. Also, EJ Swift, who had Another a great story in a British anthology last year and had a book out from Nightshade called Osiris. Mm-hmm. And Ramiz Nam, who mm. had a couple of science fiction novels, Crux, and a sequel, out, and, and also a great short story called Water, uh, out last year. In uh, so in, in a book called The Aura of Familiarity, uh, Interconnectedness in the Future, I think. And yeah, five very, very, very good writers in a batch of in, 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 a, time, in a time we've got a lot of good new people around. So. Those well, you're much more aware. Right? You're much more aware of new short fiction writers and new writers in general than I am, because you have to watch out for them. And there were a number of names. I should say, having looked at the table of contents and read most of your years best, there were names of people I'd never heard of that were writing terrific stories. So at some point, I want to ask you about them. Yeah, yeah, we'll find a time and we'll have have the chat. Um, so yes, he goes, he goes, we have this podcast. Let's do it sometime. Thing. So anyway, those were my Hugo nominees. Hugo nominees close soon. Uh, please, 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 please nominate, nominate, nominate. Uh, if you care at all about the Hugos and then we will have a very exciting podcast. Well, actually we then move into my least favorite part of the Hugo cycle, Gary. Do you know what that is? Mm-hmm. It's the, I know that they have closed the, um, the, the nominations, it's not inconceivable since you've been nominated before you could be nominated again. And there's a period mm. after the calculations have been done when you wait for, quote unquote, the email. That's true. And I would think that's especially anxiety producing for people who are eligible for the uh, John W. Campbell Award. Because as you mentioned, there's a, there's, there's a sunset law on that. At a certain point, you're no longer a hot new writer and you failed to be a hot new writer and you will never again be a hot new writer, and all you can hope for is an actual Hugo Award. Yeah, and wouldn't that be a curse? No, oh. I, I think everybody. I mean, I've got, I've got, actually, I'll tell you a story. Uh, six years ago, mm-hmm. I was I woke up on a, I think it was a Sunday morning, and it was in early April, 
and I was sitting on the on my couch, a cup of coffee with my laptop, mm. and this email came in, and it was the first time I had ever been nominated for the Hugo, and I was just gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. I was like shaking. I had to mm. run off and tell Marianne. So these emails come out, and you know, like you can tell when they're coming out, and uh, it, it's always a nerve-wracking time for people who feel they might have a shot. Uh-huh. But, and I would think that any of the people who we've named today uh, on our possible ballots will all be well aware that you know the, the you know, 31st of March things close. It'll take two or three weeks for them to calculate and confirm the final ballot. And then they'll send out emails to people saying, will you accept the nomination? And what you'll mm. see is, and I keep an eye out for this because it's just the way I think. You'll see on Twitter someone, Twitter someone saying, got good news but can't say anything. Yeah, And what that means, that, that's code for, I just got nominated for the Hugo, but I can't tell you yet. Yeah, and it's also code for, you didn't. No, never in my experience. That's really, no, no, you're, you're, no, you're right. No, you're right, because one year, um, um, whether you, either we got nominated or I got nominated, and it had been like a week since all the other nominees were out uh, before the uh, the minor categories got uh, got mentioned. So yeah, one there was one year when I'd completely given up on it, and then suddenly days later the email came in yes uh, and of course there was there was one year when charles brown coyly said why don't you go upstairs and check your email because he knew the minute things happened <laughs> um, and it turns out he didn't know it turns out the first time i ever got nominated was for a book of actually, the first time i ever got nominated like i've been nominated dozens yeah, yeah. of times but it was for a book of reviews and charles and they had emailed Charles Brown to find my email address. And Charles was enough of a detective to realize there's only one reason they would have asked for my email address. So he actually had figured out the nomination before I'd even officially learned about it. Yeah. And then, of course, he said, you can't tell anybody that you, 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 the usual thing. I can't tell anybody about it. So anyway, let's, let's wish everybody in the world good luck. Yes. If, if you are eligible, I hope that you, uh, I, w- I wish you good luck whether you've been name-checked on this podcast at any time or not. There are very, very few things that I can look back on. It'll be interesting to see what happens to the ballot. It will. Uh, And we will talk about it and we'll go through. Uh, We can predict some things. There's some things, if they're missing, you will be surprised, frankly. There will always be. Um, And I guess it's been a while since something was added to the ballot that really left you thinking, oh, my God, how did that get there? So it will be an interesting adventure. Well... One of the things we should mention before we end the podcast, and I, I'm not sure whether this involves the Hugos at all, but the most distressing piece of news that ah. I heard at ICFA on the first night yes. uh, involved the death of Lucius Shepard, who we had at many times talked about trying to get on the podcast, who, of course, had had difficulties with his health, with a stroke. With uh, I, I talked to Jeff Ford, who was a good friend of his, and apparently a very painful last few months. But still, the news of his death was distressing in all sorts of ways because the uh, it seemed like the bulk of the Dragon Griot stories, which is probably a masterpiece of modern fantasy, was, a, was just about to come together in some kind of coherent way that would have gotten him a lot of attention. Do you think so? I, I, I don't know. I think the field has had a funny relationship with Lucius in the last five years his career goes through certain periods you know mm-hmm. because there's the you know he, he breaks on into the field in the early 80s i mean he first was published in the late 70s but he really breaks into the field in the early 80s in an incandescent right. white burn of, of short fiction 
I mean, just one astoundingly brilliant story after the other. And they get packed up by possibly at that time the best and savviest short story collection editor the field had, Jim Turner, when he was working at Arnhem. So he puts together the Jaguar Hunter, the first collection, which includes uh, you know, the man who hunted the uh, the man who painted the dragon Raoul. Right. Uh, it also includes, I mean, obviously the Jaguar Hunter itself, R and R. I mean, these fantastic sort of South American jungle war stories, vitriolic, bile-inflected dragon stories, stories of down and out hobos, fantastic works. Right. Um, and the field is like knocked on it off its socks. And then several years later, we get The Ends of the Earth, which is the next major, major collection. Right. I think later in his years, the impression I got was Lucius looked back with some degree of dubiousness, I think, on these earlier works, but I think not correctly. I think you can always question the perspective of the artist a little bit when they're reconsidering their own work. And Lucius was less fond of some of that stuff, but it remains incredibly powerful. And I have to say, for me... In some ways, at least as a short fiction reader, the mid-80s were the single most exciting reading period of my life. I can imagine. I can see that. Uh, and, I mean, my, magazines have never been as exciting as they were then. The people well, who had a lot of really interesting writers coming in. You, you were coming in. Um, people tend to think of, of the mid-80s, I think, as the... Uh, post neuromancer area where everybody era where everybody was moving into that. Well, I, well, I think whenever you talk about the '80s, everybody thinks about bad Duran Duran videos, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, that's true too. But they don't think what they don't think about is that you picked up an issue of Asimov's and you were likely to get a brilliant story by Lucia Shepard or Stan Robinson uh-huh. or Bill Gibbs. Well, not so much Bill Gibbs; he didn't really appear there. He's an Omni. Uh, Bruce Sterling or. Uh, John Kessler in early parts of his career, Mike Swanwick in the early parts of his right. career, all these kind of people writing in can- just just brilliant work, and you know you'd, you'd see that you know the, the the coming up list of uh, you know stuff for the next issues, and you'd be like, oh my god, there's gonna be another Lucius Shepard story here. So Lucius has this great period of time that starts in about. 83 or 4, I guess. Because well, you know, Green Eyes came out in 84, so I ran there. I was gonna say yeah. Uh, and rolls through till the early 90s. Uh, probably culminating with uh, a couple of major Dragon Growl novel, not you know, uh, novelettes, and then also with the Golden, right? Uh, which you know is one of, is a great example of where if Lucius had chosen to be a, a commercial success rather than being one of those unique savants that that sometime appear in the science fiction field who seem to fight commercial success as hard as they can, uh, he could have written a string of, of Golden novels and done very 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 well. Just as oh. if he'd ever actually delivered the Dragon Growl book that he promised to deliver, then that too would have. Because the, I mean, one of the, the passing tragedies for me to jump around a little is that the Grand Tour will never be written, right? The Grand Tour was the the, the oh, great like Dragon Growl book, and all, whilst we have pieces of it, and if we want to talk about editors to thank, we should be thanking Bill Schaefer for a lot of the Lucia Shepard stuff we have. I think that's true. He chased Lucius. He gave him a market. He paid him well. Uh, we have. Uh, the, you know, it was up for the World Fantasy Award last year, the Dragon Girl Collection, which collects most yes. of it. And we're about to get Beautiful Blood, which is a Dragon Girl novel, which is due out in a couple of months. Uh, and then I think that may, may be close to the end of it. There may be some unpublished stuff around. But then Lucius goes quiet for a chunk of time, and I don't really know why. Bibli- biographically, he did. Yeah, and then in the late '90s comes bouncing back with just one incredible novella kind of piece after the other. The kind of stuff that anybody else again would have turned into commercially successful novels, 
Uh, and, and we can look back at some of the, sh the shorter books that came out at that time that might have been stretched into more to make them m more appealing. But just fantastic stories. Only partly here. Senior Voltos. God, I think it was. A whole bunch of stories. He seemed to like the novella length, especially toward the end of his career, which is probably the least commercial length you can work in. Um, they're concise novels is what they really are. They're concise novels, really. But there was a sense that – the first I know exactly when the first time I heard the name Lucius Shepard, it was because uh, 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 it was – I was friends with Aldous Budras at that time, and he had been – he was reviewing for FNSF, but I think he had been reading – uh, for the Ace Specials, and as I recall, Green Eyes was one of the new series of Ace Specials yeah. that came out in uh, 84. And he said, this guy is terrific. He said, this guy is wild, he's uncontrolled, but this is really the best novel I've seen. And he made me read it. I mean, I'll, mm. AJ made me read this thing. I bought the paperback. I wasn't, this was years before I was reviewing for Locus. And it was um, a little uncontrolled. It's a little bit of a zombie novel, a little bit of a science fiction novel. A little bit, it's the kind of thing he did really well throughout his career absolutely hypnotic i thought yeah. and so I, I paid attention to that didn't um this was when i was back in the days when i simply read what i wanted to read so i kept my eye out for life during wartime um which was only a couple of years later maybe two or three years later three, uh, yeah. in the mid okay and i thought that was just terrific this is a, this is one of the major mainstream novels that deals with issues of vietnam this is in, in the science fiction field, this is the only novel that really belongs on a shelf with Joe Haldeman's The Forever War as a way of dealing with the possibilities of future war derived from our experiences recently. And that was still very early in his career. And I think that book's been in print ever since, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, um, I don't know, actually. I, I've got a funny feeling life war during, during, during wartime may be out of print. Oh, really? But I will check in a second while, while uh, we're check, chatting. Check and see. Um, but yeah, um, but yes. Interestingly, though, that, that I mean, he only wrote one more full-length novel after that, right? And that was the Golden. The Golden. You know, he, he was never a prolific novelist. He, I think he pulled them back one after the other. Oh, it, it is out as an SF masterwork, certainly. Um, oh, as it as it should be. Um, and, and this might be a chance to go back and reread it, actually, now that I think about it. But anyway, he just put together this, this string of amazing stuff. The stories that came out from the 90s, and there's like a really, really spectacular string of them. And when you, you know, when you look at like everything from about, say, as Eternity and Afterwards onwards, or maybe even Radiant Green Star he came mm. back with. And then you've got these stories like Only Partly Here and Jailwise and... Uh, you know, handsome, winsome Johnny, uh, hands up, who wants to die? Just great stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, it, it's a r real tragedy. He died too young. I think he just, d depending on which piece of information you believe. And one of the other interesting things to me about Shepard is he fictionalized his own life fairly solidly. Yes, he did. I think it's fair um, to say, which makes it interesting. One of the one of the debates that was going on for the first two days after we'd all heard it, Ikfa was his birth date and. Uh, the, the detective work that was involved on the part of the science fiction encyclopedia people, including Graham Slight and Roger Robinson, uh, which probably, I think, fairly firmly established his birth date as 1943, even though everyone was reporting it as 1947, um, is that's, that's fascinating by itself. The 1947 date apparently came from a form he had filled out for the science fiction encyclopedia's second okay. edition, which he, wrote, he simply scrawled 1947 on it. Yeah. Uh, but there's a poem he published in 1953 at the age of 10 or 9 
which was clearly his work. So, and, and, and there was there was some a lot of controversy or at least disagreement over what his relationship was with Southeast Asia. Sure, he had certainly given the impression that he was you know somehow involved in the military and, and during the Vietnam War, which he wasn't. He, he, he told but amazing he, stories. He told story. I remember reading a story about how apparently he was in the Black Forest. Mm-hmm. Uh, trafficking drugs and buried them you know, was disrupted by or interrupted by a troop of boy scouts and hid the drugs you know buried the drugs near a tree and never found them again and all kinds of odd things there was an odd thing that happened about folklore uh, about fan folklore i guess it is because lucius shepherd used to be a fairly regular guest at readercon and in fact mm-hmm. had been guest of honor at readercon and I've probably told you this story, and uh, if, if not, Amelia Beamer has, and if not, possibly Brett Cox, because three of us were there, and it's a story involving what is no longer uh, insensitively called a drink called Irish car bombs. That's what we called them back then. Mm-hmm. I think they replaced the term with something else because it's really, um, well, it's an unfortunate term, but it involves taking a, a, a jigger of some Irish cream liqueur and dropping it into a pint of Guinness and then drinking the whole thing down before the cream curdles or something like that. Um, and I thought, this is a story I've been telling people for a long time. That I, I, was, I was at ReaderCon. Amelia can verify this because she was with me. Uh, and we go into the bar at ReaderCon and we're, we're really getting our nerve up to try to do one of these things because the whole thing is you have to pretty much gulp down the pint of Guinness. And um, and we did. We were very proud on having done this, but we were sitting in a little booth with, with Lucius sitting there and he was on his 11th or 12th. Yeah. And, and but so so I, I, I remembered that. I've talked to Amelia about it. Brett Cox, who was another friend who was there uh, at the same time. But then I started hearing the same story from other people. Uh, who, by, by the end of the convention, there were probably seven or eight people who said they'd been there at the same thing. So this is the kind of folklore that goes around about him. But the fact is, he did enormous damage to his body throughout most of his life. Yes. And it's, it's difficult to avoid confronting yes. that. I'm not sure that it's related to the stroke or the tumor on his spine he had toward the end, which is apparently extraordinarily painful. The, uh, uh, the account I got from Jeff Jeffrey Ford was just heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, well, I will say that, I mean, I spoke to Jack Dan, who's a longtime dear friend of Lucius's. Uh-huh. And yes, back in the day, the way Jack tells it, and I don't think it's at all improper to say, Lucius was a Herculean consumer yes. of illicit substances and was known to, you know, like would, would be right. A lot of the writing from the seventy from the eighties, uh, was certainly done firmly under the influence of a lot of chemical assistance late at night. You know, but we have this incredible body of work, and I know that the, you know, there must be a few things left still to come out, and it'll be yeah. interesting to see what does. I, I actually have a long novelette that didn't make a book of mine that I don't know what's going to happen. I don't own the rights to it, but I have a copy of it. So I should get in touch with the people who own, who, who will be responsible for his estate later on when everything has calmed down and they're ready to think about such things. But I, I hope that he's remembered. It actually touches on something that will now sync, connect to our previous con- topic, and that is awards. And that uh-huh. there is an award that Lucia Shepard should always have received. He just should have lived long enough to get it. And for a brief moment, 
that door remains open. It will mean nothing to him, given that he is dead, but mm. I think it would be appropriate. He is still eligible for Lifetime Achievement at the World Fantasy Awards. Yes, he is. He always should have received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the World Fantasy Awards, and if you were to talk to most people, they would say that, of course, obviously he would get one. Yes, right. I think that's part of the problem. And, of course, obviously he did not. And I can't speak to, because I'd, I'm, I'd have to look up who actually the judges are this year and all that kind of thing, but I know that he's eligible, and I kind of hope that he gets get, get, he, that he gets acknowledged, gets, he gets admitted, you know, entered, you know, added to that, that group of recipients. That's an excellent suggestion. I think his, I'm trying to remember if his name came up during the year I was judge. It may have, but it may have come up in the same way that a number of other writers have come up, which is in the context that he's really doing good work now, and let's let's see what he can come up with next. I, because that argument I know has been made more than one year. Uh, and I think the the fact that Lucius Shepard's death was premature is is, is well, unarguable on the one hand, but not surprising on the other. Well, no, but, but also you, you have to turn around. I mean, he's a, he was a seventy, nearly seventy-one year old man, right? Right. Who had been writing since nineteen seventy-seven. Right. I, I don't need. I don't think anyone would argue that he 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 had a career, a lifetime career, uh, that you could include that could be looked at. Yeah, you know, and of course this then, and we won't sort of segue too far into it. Touches on a whole bunch of other people who are moving into that age, an age where they really, really should be considered. And most people would say, well, of course they're going to get it, but you just don't know. And I, I, I you know, I, well, I mean, you, you mentioned Tim Powers earlier in the podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. I could touch on, you know, say Howard Waldrop, a man who has been in notoriously poor health the last four or five years. And I think would be a very worthy and appropriate recipient mm-hmm. of that award. And there's all sorts of other people, lots and lots and lots and lots. These are just a couple. Well, one of the things that but, came yeah. up, it's, it's, it's come up, uh, came up in my year, it came up in the year when I've talked to other people who've judged. The, 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 the danger of the World Fantasy Award uh, is the assumption on the part of the judges that somebody already has the award. Yeah. And people were astonished to find out, uh, well, the year, I should not give an example, but... Um, there was somebody we gave the award to the year that I was a judge. And the reason that person hadn't gotten nominated before was because previous committees had simply thought, of course this person has the award. We're not going to think about that. We're going to, we're going to go after people that nobody knows about. I think Lucius Shepard is one of these names who uh, has been around for so long. And I think the other thing that's a problem with Lucius Shepard's reputation and readership and career is that he's not easily identifiable as any kind of a genre writer. Certainly the Dragon Grial stories are, are great fantasy stories, but Life During Wartime is really near future science fiction. Some of his fiction is horror fiction. Some of his fiction is mainstream fiction. It's it's not fiction that... Uh, we, we make a lot of comments on this podcast about crossing boundaries. It's not fiction that recognized any boundaries uh, no. at all. So it's essentially Lucius Shepard fiction, and that uh, gave him his unique voice and his unique vision, I think, but at the same time, it didn't give him an identifiable group of followers. He doesn't yeah. seem to have a cult. No, well, or, or maybe not, though I think it probably would surprise you. I think also, to some degree, I think his fiction could be very, I'm trying to think of how I want to put this, masculine. And I think some of that put him out of step with the temper of the time over the last, 
five or ten years. Um, not entirely sure what you mean by that. Uh, there's a... But go ahead. No, no. Basically, I think to some degree he was a little bit... I got the impression that he was a bit out, out of the, out, outside of the step of things a little bit over the last uh, five or ten years, which I think is unfortunate, and I think it has maybe led him to being under... Some of the quality of his later work to being under-recognized. Um, yeah, and I, I, am, I hope... I hope that people will see their way. I mean, I will say I have sympathy here for the World Fantasy Jury. I was on a jury uh, back in 2002, and we had a famous writer who very sadly passed away and Mm -hmm. was in his last year of eligibility, and we could have given him the Lifetime Achievement Award, and we chose not to. Uh Uh-huh. And our reasoning... In his case, was first of all, and I guess maybe it touches slightly on Lucius in the sense that this particular person wasn't primarily known for fantasy, mm. and there's that feeling that did you really want to be doing it just because they died? The kind of um, overreaction of trying to avoid the appearance of being yeah. sentimental, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I could understand that to some extent. Uh, I, I, I think with Lucius' cases, it, it's a little different. It's um, it's someone who's all. And Howard Waldrop might be a good comparison. Um, someone who's just always been reliably one of the cornerstones of the field, but not a cornerstone that you could really name the influence of. I mean, the the, the fact is, very few people. It's interesting. We had a conversation weeks ago now uh, with, with with Neil about R.A. Lafferty. There are writers who are just phenomenally impressive when you read them. But when you look at what their legacy is, it's hard to find people writing Lucius Shepard-type stories. It's hard to find people trying to write Howard Waldrop stories, except for a few courageous souls. And uh, it's, it's, it's certainly hard to find people who try to write R.A. Lafferty stories, except for Neil Gaiman. So, so I think maybe that's part of it. You can't really find a school or a kind of trend or a kind of uh, wake yeah. to measure behind these writers maybe that might be true i don't know it will be interesting to see what happens come world fantasy battle time though we are leaping way ahead and this is of course to a convention that i will not be attending gary i'm sorry but we'll 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 i will bring my computer and my microphone and we will do podcasts from there yeah Uh, this is this is the beginning of the convention season it'll be just like being there uh, it'll be just the same we'll by 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 this october we will have really high-tech 3D, feely kinds of podcast equipment, so you'll be right there in virtuality. Do you know where we have to ha- encourage people to run a convention, Gary? Mm. I think we need to start a campaign, in fact. Now, allowing that most Cood Street campaigns, dear listeners, as you know, last for the length of time it takes one of us to discuss them, uh-huh. uh, and we, we don't follow through, I think World Fantasy Convention needs to go to Tasmania. Okay, Tasmania is fine for me, but the problem you're going to have, I will tell you right now, is the problem that Helsinki will have, is the problem that Beijing will have. It is not the problem that London has. Now, those are all Worldcon bids, I grant you that. And that is that American fans don't have that much money. Tough. Uh, I could figure out, but why Tasmania rather than Perth or Sydney or Melbourne? Okay, Perth is too hot. And... Yeah, you don't want to come here. Uh, 
Everybody wants to go to Perth now because there's a missing airplane only 1,500 miles west of you. I can tell you why you want to go to Hobart, Gary, for, for, okay, the, Hobart. for the 2018 World Fantasy Convention. Mm-hmm. It has the world's best scotch. This, this last week, a Tasmanian scotch was voted the best scotch in the world. Period. By whom? By Tasmanians? No, 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 no. By the, the official major Bible of Scotch. Well, that's impressive. Uh, and this is the first time that's ever happened. For, for an Australian Scotch? Yes, absolutely. This, yeah. must be, this must be like the moment when the French Wine Academy yeah. actually named Stag's Leap of California wine as the number one wine in the world because it was, it was devastating to the to the French wine industry. People in Scotland are not going to, people in Scotland will be sabotaging trips to Tasmania if people come because of the Scotch. And the thing is, Hobart has become very uh, arty and interesting and all that. Hobart is a place where in Perth, everyone talks about moving to. I would love to go to Hobart. It is a brilliant, brilliant looking place. I've got a friend who's there at the moment. They have about just, f- f- four or five different fantastic distilleries and wine yard, vineyards and restaurants, all kinds of things, and would be a brilliant place to have for a world fantasy. And I would love to see it there. Well, is Hobart putting in a bid? No, but we have to encourage them to. Tansy Rainer Roberts of Hobart, come on down. Tansy, put in a bid. We will be there for the scotch. If there's no world fantasy, we'll be there for the scotch anyway. Well, first of all, I should say to you that it's my understanding that there should be a a very strong bid out there any minute now. In fact, I know there is a strong bid Uh for world fantasy to go to Brisbane. And, you know, look, Brisbane's a perfectly good place, full of very lovely people. Lovely people. Never having been to your continent at all, I will take your word for it. But I do believe that world fantasy, to the extent it can it can draw uh, sufficient memberships, uh, should certainly be held outside the United States more often than it is. Yeah. If it's going to call itself world fantasy. Yes. Well, I believe that it's going to. There's a very good chance it's going to go to Brisbane in about 2017 or 18. Personally, though, Hobart, and I I can tell you, Gary, that I got a bottle of the world's best scotch for Christmas. Excellent. And it's pretty damn good. It's really good, huh? <laughs> and I could, uh, it's Sullivan's Cove, are, are the, are the uh, distiller. I can tell you also, it, it disappeared from the, every shelf in Australia the day after it won. Hmm. And the last, well, time I, last I saw, bottles were now selling for ten times the price. Really? Yes. Sullivan's Cove? Yes. So th- th- this has been, well, not really a service announcement because most of you can't get the scotch. But um, if you ever encounter Sullivan's Cove French Oak uh, whiskey, it is fairly incredible. It's not scotch, obviously. It's whiskey. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just, like fizzy, just like fizzy wine is, isn't actually uh, champagne, right? No. And to be honest, I'm not a sophisticated scotch drinker at all, but that won't stop me from drinking really good scotch. I think, actually, I hate to say this, but I think, Garth Nick said he might bring a bottle to um, World Fantasy when I'm not there. That would be really cruel of him. Okay. Well, and on, on, on that note, Gary, we've probably rambled. No, now that you're on, on the web looking for, it's not that expensive. How much is it with air? Well, for uh, $150 a bottle. It's more than that here. Really? Oh, yeah. I could mainline this in Australia. Well, you'd have to ship it here. That's why it's... That's true. So then the cost goes up again. 
Right. I can actually buy this. I can buy this about a mile from where I'm sitting. Off you go then. You won't regret it if you like scotch. All right. Or you can wait well, for the garbage to try some. And 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 the, the new the new weekly feature of Cood Street is <laughs> no, it's not. Where, where, we where probably, to find the latest spirits in your neighborhood? We, we, we will probably never again mention that Sullivan's Co. French Oak Whiskey won the World Whiskey Award for 2014 as best single malt whiskey in the world. Um, unless I actually go to Tasmania sometime soon, in which case you could hear a lot of it, and that'd be really really boring for you. Uh huh. Anyway, well, enough of this. We're, we're at the end of an episode of the podcast, surely. I know we are. We're, we're, we're done again. You, I mean, I'm surely everybody uh, you know, sort of has finished listening now. They, they automatically downloaded this episode, realized it was a dull one, and moved on. Yeah, it's too bad they're going to miss all this wonderful stuff about Lucius Shepard. Which but wonderful stuff is that? Tell me, tell me, tell me. Hmm? Which the one? fact that just, just we, we were making very insightful remarks about his career, which uh, which people won't get to because they will have fallen asleep during the first half of the podcast. Well, we shouldn't have, you know. We should have started with Lucius. We did it wrong again. We always put the good stuff at the back end of the podcast. We should put it up front. Well, I can only say, if you've never read Lucius Shepard, there's a treat in store. If you're willing to read electronically, you can pick up the best of Lucius Shepard you know, for Kindle for about three bucks or something. I was going to say the best of best of Lucius Shepard is where I would recommend beginning. Yeah. Because the short fiction is, I mean, Life During Wartime is a classic, but the short fiction is an easier way in. It is. I mean, uh, if I'd been assembling it, I might have picked a slightly different table of contents, but it is as good a way in as any. And honestly, I cannot think of, I, I think this is... Yeah, I'd stand by this, Gary. Mm. I don't think at any time in my reading experience I have been as strongly, sorry, I've been more strongly impacted by a single story than I was when I read R and R the first time in Asimov's. Ah, which is the way into life during wartime, as a matter of fact, also. Yeah, uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's an enormously powerful story. So you know, if for R and R alone. Or the man who painted the dragon Raoul, or the scale hunter's beautiful daughter. I mean, it's interesting that it's everybody. Everybody quotes, you know, on his death announcement. It was the lines, the closing lines from the scale hunter's beautiful daughter that everybody quoted. Which are? You don't know? No. Oh, Gary. I don't know them. I don't know any lines from fiction. <laughs> from that day forward, she lived happily ever after. Except for the dying at the end and the heartbreak in between. That's right. Okay. Right. Great. Great ending. And on that note, on let that us note, end. let us end. And next week we will either have a guest or not. Who knows? We will podcast. Who again. knows? Until then, till, onward to London. Onward to London. Onward to the Hugo voting. One more day. <laughs> till next week. And then it's over. Goodbye. Okay. Bye.